God, our Creator, when you speak, there is light and life. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may listen to one another, speak the truth in love, and bear much fruit in the service of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I was going to do, uh, and Brian was here, I could have gotten on the website, but gone through and gotten it. I was going to play the theme song from Gilligan's Island. And the reason is, in chapter 27, we have Paul leaving to go to Rome. So we have a sailing episode, we have a storm that comes up, and we have a shipwreck. Reminds you of a comedy, right? <laughs> but I hear plenty. Good. Use your imagination. But, but I mean, it just came to me. I guess uh, you know, it's a total different type situation. But also, we have another in the Bible situation of a person that goes sailing, and a storm comes up, and that's Jonah. So what I'd like for us to do is to start today and read, someone read verses uh, of chapter 27 in Acts, read verses 1 through 12. Okay. When it was decided that we were to sail for Italy, they transferred Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort and Julius. Embarking on a ship of Anthemenium that was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, there we put to sea and accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After we had sailed across the sea that is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Canidus, and as the wind was against us, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Since much time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous because even the fast had already gone by, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix where they could spend the winter. It was a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest. Okay, thank you. And also, if we would flip over to Jonah. And I'll read that. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittiah, saying, Arise, go to Nivea, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so that he paid the fare and went on board. 
to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. When the mariners were afraid, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And they said to him, and he said to and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tumultuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon us. So we have two people going sailing. And Paul is going because he has been told he's going. Paul was told several times by dreams, by an angel, that he was to go to Rome. And even when uh, he had been in the presence of Festus and Agrippa, they, after having heard his testimony, said, this man's done nothing. If he had not appealed to Caesar, we'd have let him go. But Paul had been told he had to go to Rome. And so whatever it took to get there, Paul was going to get there. So even if he had to go as a prisoner, which he was, he was a different kind of prisoner than the rest of them that Julius the centurion, and it says of the Augustan, cohort, so he was of an imperial troop, regiment, whatever. I mean, not just any old legion, but an imperial legion. And so there were other prisoners on board, and, but Paul was kind of special. If, if for nothing else, when they reached Sidon, he was allowed to go and visit his friends. Now, you know, most Roman prisoners wouldn't be, well, you know, we're going to be here for the day. Why don't you go see your family? No. I mean, that doesn't even happen today most it's of the time. Relaxed. Yeah. And, but, you know, there's a real possibility Julius would have been at the um, hearing, whatever, that uh, Agrippa and Festus were the lead uh, characters and the people primarily that Paul was talking to, but there were others in the room because it was a big, almost like state occasion. So Julius could have heard what he said and had an understanding of at least who this man was, who this prisoner was, 
and would have understood he's really going to Rome because he wanted to go to Rome, not because he's got to go to Rome. And some of the other people on the boat, the other prisoners, were condemned men. Some of them would have appealed to Caesar, but others probably were condemned because even at this point in time, Rome was providing entertainment to its citizens there in Rome of gladiators and whatever else, and so they just needed people to be available for killings. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not like us going to the Alabama theater and seeing some old play or going to see the traveling Broadway plays that comes through. Their idea of entertainment was something that to us is just incomprehensible, but it was the way life was. The Romans even had a special word for them. Condemned prisoners who were whose sentence was to die in the arena were called noxi, and that's the Latin word that we get noxious. Huh. And they would, you know, they were dressed up as gladiators and they fought in the arena until they were killed. But their sentence was to fight to death in the arena. Yeah. And normally these noxi were fighting um, experienced gladiators, so they pretty much didn't have but one one gladiatorial outing and then the thumbs went down but they had a they even had a word for it that was they had they had a chance to live another day if they were good but they didn't very few did um the first boat they got on was kind of a coastal boat it was a small craft and it stayed close to the coastline it really didn't get out of view so it's like you're down at the in the Gulf and you see boats out basically on the horizon, that's what these would have been. It would not have been like the second boat that was from Alexandria, which was more a ship as opposed to a boat. And so it was more seaworthy. It was bigger and whatnot. And it was headed after, you know, they got on the Alexandrian boat, it was headed to, um, to Rome, and it would have, the normal route would have taken it north of Crete, but because of the winds, they went to the south side to Fairhaven, which was a port, but it was just a port. It wasn't really almost even a protective port. So they decided to go on to Phoenix, which would have been on to us the western end of Crete. But he says that, Luke does, that the voyage w was now dangerous because even the fast had al was already over. That was the fast of the atonement, the feast of the atonement that they celebrated, which would have been in October. And storm season, kind of like hurricane season, started in November, but just like we have hurricanes in October, you can have big storms in October. And that's what would have happened is this storm that came up was um, gonna be pretty big. Now Paul says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now Paul had been a person that had done a lot of sailing, because you know, while he wasn't a sailor, he'd taken lots of trips from his journeys on his various um, missionary trips. And so he would have been on the boats a lot and at least observed different periods of time and, you know, seasons and what happened if you were out sailing at the wrong time of the year. 
and he spoke his mind. But the owner of the ship and the pilot, the captain, go, no, we'll be fine. And Julius the centurion said, you know, I'll go with what the boat captain and the owner say. And Phoenix did have a better harbor. So, you know, while Paul was warning them that this is going to be dangerous, they really just wanted to kind of almost go from here to Tuscaloosa. And most of us would have said, yeah, let's go on. This guy's saying we're going to have a problem and, you know, we're going to have a big snowstorm and we're not going to make it. They went with, it's 60 miles. It's not a big deal. We can do it. But then we get to verse 13 through 20. And um, Mike, maybe if you don't mind reading 13 to 20. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cotta. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the gods to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Okay, thank you. The wind came up. It's just like with Jonah. You know, they just set sail, a wind comes up. And they start wondering what to do. And they bring in, it says, they brought the boat in. This would have been like the lifeboat. And it would have, instead of like nowadays, the lifeboats stored on board, it'd be like a smaller, uh, sometimes people have a yacht and they'll have a little boat behind it that they pull that they use to go back and forth to shore. That's the same thing this would have been. And so they would have worked hard at probably getting it back onto the boat because if nothing else, it had a lot of water in it just because of the splashing and the waves action. But they wanted to get it on board. And then the wind kept uh, coming. And what they did, they used the supports to undergird the ship. So what they would have done would have had big cables thrown it over held on to both sides and thrown it over and pulled it back. And what they want to do is wrap it to keep the boards in place so the hull doesn't pop. And they also sometimes would do them from the bow to the stern just to keep this thing tightened up so that any little loose crack, loose nails, whatever like that wouldn't give way and straight to the bottom they'd go and it would break up. 
more readily. And then what did they do? They started, um, you know, ran aground and run aground on the Syrtis. That was a sandy area in the Mediterranean north of Libya that was effectively a ship's graveyard. So they were scared of getting, that's what it you know, talks about, they would be pushed aground on the Syrtis, which and, um, they would have had it. And um, you know, they lowered the gear, which would have been the sails, because they'd have been shredded if they'd left them up anyway. And then they began to jettison the cargo, just like here again with Joan and them, started throwing cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Then they t the tackle, that would have been, you know, some of the ship's gear that they really didn't need, anything that they didn't have to have to even try to do it, they would have thrown it above, uh, overboard so that they were literally at the mercy of the, the sea. And then they go a while without any food. You know, they probably didn't have time to eat, scared to eat, working. Uh, they've obviously thrown some of it overboard because ships from Alexandria carried lots of grain because Egypt was the granary, if you will, for Rome. And so this ship would have been carrying lots of grain. And they probably threw some of it overboard, threw some other cargo, whatever they were taking overboard, and got rid of it to lighten the load. But Paul stands up and says, you know, I told you not to go. <laughs> the prisoner on board says Yeah, this. yeah, you know, and it's kind of like, hey guys, I told you. You know, you need to listen to me. But I don't think Paul was necessarily getting a gig, but yet at the same time was. He was reminding them he'd warned them. And you need to listen to me because I got something else to tell you this time. And he's letting them know that, you know, take heart. For there will be no lice of life among you, only of the ship. For this night there stood before me an angel of the, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, almost like Jonah. He was asleep. <laughs> He's asleep in a storm. Jonah's asleep in a storm. And, of course, when there was a violent uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee, they had to go wake Jesus up, and how can you sleep through this? You know, in Paul's case, Paul knew he was, regardless of what happened, Paul knew he was going to Rome because he'd been told. And, he, you know, he was doing what he had to do, you know, as it worked along. He made the request, I want to go to Caesar. And so he knew that, that he would get there, you know, whether it would be the others or not when he warned them before. But now he's finding out, being told, that's not going to happen. There will be no loss of life. So, you know, they start to at least maybe hear him. Do not be afraid, Paul said. You must stand before God. That's what was told to him in Acts 23. Uh, and several other places in Acts, Paul had quoted that. So he's telling them, I've got to stand before Caesar. We'll get there. But God has also granted you 
the same ability to live through this storm that's going to happen to me. And I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. So, you know, <laughs> the ship's going to be lost, and probably they're thinking, okay, it's going to be lost, and how are we going to be saved? But that's where God plans things out. God knows. And then looking at verses 27 through 38, um, someone would read that one for us. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. When fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men's men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair, of, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they, were, then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Uh, we were all in 267 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Thank you. Appreciate it, Stuart. It's still being driven along. They hear and get the sense that there is shallower water. So they, they take soundings. And they see that, you know, they're getting a little closer and the water's getting a little shallower. And the sailors, hey, we're going to cut and run. We're going to throw the boat over and we're going to get out of here now that the water's getting shallow and we'll see where we're going to go and see what happens. Paul, here again, the prisoner, continues to exert leadership. You know, he had told them before, don't go. Then he told them everybody's going to be saved. Then he goes, you go on that boat, you're not part of the ship, and you could be lost. And Julius, the centurion, has soldiers cut the rope after the boat had been tossed overseas, and before the sailors could get in it, they had to stay on board. We're all in this together. And then dawn comes, and Paul says, hey, we need to eat. We haven't eaten in 14 days. They probably had a little bit, but hadn't had a lot because to go without food for 14 days, particularly when you're having to try to sail the boat, throw stuff over and all that sort of stuff, you would have... Uh, been more than malnourished, but whatever they had had would have been 
barely enough to subside on, subsist on. And so he said, we need to all sit down here and eat. And then he says, I urge you to take food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Every one of you will be safe. But we need to have our strength to do what we're going to have to do to get from the sinking ship to shore. And it says, he said those things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. Now, he broke it. This wouldn't have been like a Eucharist, but he would have blessed the meal. And, you know, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. Probably only Luke, uh, Artescusk, the however you pronounce it, uh, the Macedonian from Thessalonica, there were probably only two or three Christians on the ship. Now, this Macedonian was one of the two people back when Paul was in Ephesus and they rioted that when they couldn't get to Paul, they took he and another person prisoner. So he had been following Paul and been there with him for a while. Paul also makes reference to him as a fellow prisoner in Colossians. So now whether he was on the boat because of a crime that he had committed, was coming on board even as, you know, as if he were a prisoner or whatever, Paul referred to him as a prisoner. Now he could have been a prisoner but in a sense that he was held like Paul, but then again, in some ways, Paul viewed himself as a prisoner as much because of his responsibility and duty of what God was telling him to do. Just like, you know, people in prison, they get told what to do. They don't make a decision about what their day is going to be like. They're told what it's going to be like. There, there is one scholar um, who speculates that Luke and Aristarchus got on board that ship by taking the status of Paul's slaves that they otherwise wouldn't have been on the voyage except as Paul's slaves. Paul obviously had a certain amount of status um, on the ship. He was given, we'll see that the, the centurion considers him, we've already seen it, but we'll see a little more, that the centurion considers him a sort of a a couple of levels above these prisoners, uh, the rest of these prisoners, and it wouldn't normally be that just companions can go on the ship on a, on a voyage like this, a companion of a prisoner. So a prisoner with a certain amount of status with two slaves as his attendants, it may well be that Aristarchus and, and um, Luke passed themselves off as his slaves. No doubt Luke was on this voyage because he's relating the story in the first person. He was there. He was an eyewitness. And there's one other point, if you don't mind, Steve. Um, Scott gives us the... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you can. I, no, no, yeah, you were say I it, think so, you're so by ahead. James Smith. Yes, uh, right, right, right. There was, really fascinating. He, he was an army person, but he was an avid sailor in the 1800s. He wrote a book in 1848 called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. 
and he had spent a bunch of time living in areas around the Mediterranean, probably at some of his duty stations. And he, based on the time that Paul would have made this voyage, he went and studied currents and went back moon phases and all that sort of stuff to know what would have been happening. And he basically says, yep, this happened. Because of the narrative that Luke had given, Luke was there. Luke, you know, wrote it. He may have written in a journal, but the journal got lost, but he had to rewrite it after the shipwreck. But he, you know, had his, Luke's memory was such that, you know, he could have remembered these things and re journalized it, so to speak. But Smith says that based on just what Luke is saying, what going back and looking in historical records, just knowing how currents and weather patterns and all that existed, yeah, this happened. This shipwreck happened. This isn't something Paul made up. This isn't something Luke made up. And not only that, but he says that a really experienced sailor might be able to imagine this story, but he would almost surely write it with a bunch of nautical jargon, like Moby Dick. You know, Herman Melville, I tried to read Moby Dick in college, and it was like it was like a thesaurus of every whaling terminology on the world. I gave it up, you know, and read Billy Budd instead. But, um, a sailor, an experienced sailor, would almost surely use a bunch of nautical jargon, but he doesn't, which tells Smith that Luke was not an experienced sailor, and an, an inexperienced sailor would never have been able to dream up a story like this. So there are little details that are in there that make it clear that Luke was there, that he was an eyewitness to what was happening, like sailing in the lee of a particular island as opposed to the normal route on the island. An inexperienced sailor wouldn't know that you do that because of the particular winds um, in the storm. But if you were there and you saw it was actually, you know, that's exactly what happened, that's the way he recorded it. So it's, it's just, I think Coffee pointed out of some months ago that he had been reading some account somewhere of how believable this chapter is because it reflects an understanding of how the real storm winds worked in the eastern Mediterranean uh, during this time of the year. And so, you know, going back to uh, a second, Jonah and Paul. They both get on a ship. They're both going to be sailing west. They both take naps during storms. But what's Jonah doing? He's running from what God is telling him to do. Hey, Nineveh was east of where he was. It was a great Syrian city. He goes to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, to sail west. You know, it's like he's going to get as far away from where God's telling him to go as he can. He's not, you know, God doesn't know what he's talking about telling me to go to Nineveh. 
Paul knows exactly what God's telling him to do to go to Rome. And he's going, his faith is so strong, he's going to see that we arrive in Nineveh because he knows that God's promise is God's promise and he will arrive. And then we get just to the end, if everybody can hang in there a little bit, at in 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the island, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes they had tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel ag- aground, the bow out struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on the planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, all were brought safely to land. Now, the centurions, if you were, not the centurion, but the soldiers, if you were tasked with the responsibility of protecting prisoners and they escaped, you received their punishment. So they didn't want them to escape and to receive that punishment. That, that was just standard operating procedure, even if you'll recall when Peter... And James were imprisoned. And their chains, what, it was an earthquake or something, that loosened their chains and the guards just, when people escaped, just became undone because they knew that they were going to be put in prison themselves. But what happened? Peter preached to them, comforted them. Well, the same thing is happening here. But the centurion, knowing what Paul said, he's primarily interested in protecting Paul and not the other prisoners, but he's not showing preference. And so they are the ones that probably have to get on the planks because they're probably still chained. (laughs) It probably wouldn't be real easy to swim. But the soldiers and the others and the sailors could have swam freely. And so they would have been sent on, and they all were brought safely to land. Now what had Paul said? There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Paul's faith carried Paul through this whole episode. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Have a great week, and we'll be back next week, and we'll talk about the the final leg of the journey and uh, go from there.